You're listening to 100 p.m. in New York City, episode 54. One hundred PM is the show where we're interviewing one hundred expert product managers across five great cities to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product. Today's guest is Leanne Luce, product manager at Voodoo Manufacturing. If you'd like to learn more after the show, be sure to visit our website at one hundred productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for hot topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, product coach and founder of The Development Factory. Let's dive right in and say hello to Leanne. My name is Leanne Luce, and I am a product manager at Voodoo Manufacturing in Brooklyn, New York. So your background is very interesting to me. It seems like a bunch of design, a bunch of fashion, a bunch of technology. I've seen this term soft robotics show up (laughs) on more than one occasion. What is soft robotics, by the way? Yeah, so soft robotics is basically this concept and kind of a new concept around robotics, making them really soft. A lot of the techniques for soft robotics involve pneumatics, So pumping air into a device to make it move. So there are a number of ways that people have made soft robotics. One of them is with fabrics as like a external layer. And so my involvement with it has been mostly around the fabric integration. So did you just grow up and wanted to be working with robots and mechanics and cool things and hanging out in these industrial neighborhoods. Like, you seem fairly young. It's atypical for women to have these sort of deep engineering-type careers. So tell us about you. Yeah. So my dad is a carpenter, and tinkering was always a thing growing up. We had, like, a metal shop in our basement and a lathe and all the things. Basically, I was kind of a prototypical female growing up. I really loved fashion. I was really excited about the idea of becoming a fashion designer. And so when I studied in school, I studied just that. And part of it was it scratched an itch on the creative side for me where I could make something that was kind of an escape, a fantasy, um, something beautiful. And on the other side, it was this deeply technical thing to learn, which was the pattern making and drafting. And you're dealing with like really complex mathematics when you're doing a 2D to 3D translation. So I was really drawn to fashion for, in part, that technical aspect. Did you spend some time working specifically in fashion and then kind of make your way into tech? How did that crossover actually transact? Yeah, so the soft robotics were the transition point for me, but... It's the gateway drug. Soft (laughs) robotics is the gateway drug. Who knew? Basically, I started by working in the fashion industry, and I was always kind of interested in how are we going to move this industry along? I was aware that there were certain things in the process that were kind of old and outdated, but I didn't really know how to make it better. So I started seeking opportunities where people were really thinking forward. One of my first jobs was at a company that was trying to do custom fit for men. And they built a factory in Massachusetts. They had a design office there. And it relatively quickly failed and shut down. And I started looking for jobs again. And there was a friend of mine who recommended that I apply for this position at Harvard. And Harvard at the time continues to work on this soft exoskeleton suit. So I started working there just sewing. 
I was just sewing prototypes for them and kind of observing how are these little changes that we're making affecting the overall structure? How do they work on different body types? And I got to observe the user testing on those devices. And I was like really hooked. There was an application that they were working on for stroke rehabilitation. And a friend of mine had a mother who had had a stroke. And when I told her what I was working on, she just lit up in a way that like I had never seen a human get so excited. And I just thought like, man, to impact one person's life with this work would make the entire thing worthwhile. And so I started seeking opportunities in that field, uh, working specifically on soft robotics and specifically on exoskeletons, which is a really tiny niche. Right. But that was how I found my way out to San Francisco. And I worked on exoskeletons there for about two years at a place called Other Lab. Wow. And so you're back in New York. So you started in New York, you went out west, you came back. Yeah. Okay. What is voodoo manufacturing? I mean, we're here at the office. You took me through. There's 3D printers all over the place. What are you all doing over here? <laughs> yeah, so voodoo is what well, we consider ourselves a digital manufacturing hub, but right now our main product is 3D printing. Our entire approach is about making 3D printing accessible for people to build their businesses on top of. So 3D printing has had sort of a reputation for being kind of expensive, a really great fast prototyping technique, but not necessarily a manufacturing technique. So we're trying to change that. And so a lot of our prints are really inexpensive, and it's something that we're starting to roll out these services where people can plug into our operating system and like print directly from their website and we'll fulfill it. Great. Yeah. Is this your first official title as product manager? You know, you've been in this, you sort of found yourself accidentally into this world of robotics, as you described. You kind of love it. You didn't want to leave. You started observing user testing and, and all of these activities that we have come to understand as being part of the product manager journey. Was there a moment when you were introduced to this idea of, you know, there's a title for that and it's called product manager? Or yeah. did they just appoint you? Yeah, no. No one just gets appointed, you have to ask. Turns out. Um, after working on exoskeletons, I became really interested, again, in how do I bring some of the technologies that we're using here to develop these types of research products to the fashion industry. I kind of went down this rabbit hole of custom manufacturing, and then I realized that something I really needed to learn to be able to build custom manufacturing was software. I needed to learn it on any level, <laughs> so I started learning how to code. Uh, I did work as a front-end designer developer, but in my last role, what ended up happening was nobody was in charge of product there, and so I had a boss that was very flexible about how I spent my time, and I sort of, over time, was taking on more and more product management roles. So my job was very split there, and I finally realized that, like, this is exhausting, this is way too many things for one person to do, and I wanted to be more focused and kind of tackle the, the problems one at a time, or many at a time still, but in a more concerted effort. So I started applying for product management roles, and that is how I ended up here. It's interesting that you describe what I'm hearing you say is you recognize that there was a gap in terms of who's overseeing this somehow. So you're, you're kind of doing the, the user interface side. You're recognizing that someone needs to be taking lead. You're taking up that space. How do companies end up in that position, right? The position yeah. of 
we have all of the designated activity folks, but we don't have someone running the plays, so to speak. I think people don't always realize that they need it. And I think that a lot of times, like, the CEO will take over that part of the role or somebody else on the team will kind of fill in the gaps. And I think over time, it becomes unmanageable, and then it kind of splits off into this other role. But that doesn't always happen. Right. That's kind of what's happening here. I mean, if I understand correctly, you are product manager number one. I am. At Futu. So... Did the, the leadership team here recognize that whatever that thing is is becoming unmanageable and then there you were submitting applications and saying, I, I want a product manager role? I, I would say that they were more deliberate than that. John is the chief product officer here and he has been kind of the stand-in product manager for the software and design team. And I think that what has ended up happening is he stopped being able to come to stand-ups every day because he was running around kind of managing other aspects of the business. And I think he started to feel like he wasn't scoping out these projects enough for the software team. And like his day-to-day kind of activities started to have less and less to do with what they were doing. So I think at that point he was like, well, somebody needs to manage this and I don't think it can be me. So they started interviewing product managers, and I think that they kind of got a taste of, like, this could be so many different people. Like, there are product managers that are super business-focused that just want to do competitive analysis. There are product managers that are super product-focused, and they just want to talk about product. And they really needed a generalist. And I have had, like, conflict in my mind about what that means and self-identifying as a generalist, but (laughs) they hired me as kind of a generalist. Right. And what is the product specifically then? Is yeah. it this, this interface for designing or, or, or specking out these things that you want to build? I mean, help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, so we have internal and external product. Our internal product is our operating system that controls our entire factory. And our users for that are the people in the room next to us, which is wonderful because we talk to them every day. They, they ping me on Slack like, hey, there's a problem or, hey, I have a feature request. You say um, it's wonderful now. If I came back here six months from now, you say, you know, never manage a product where your users are in the same building as you. No. They'll ping you on Slack. <laughs> they'll say, fix no, I'm kidding. Okay. It's actually great. So we meet with them every other week during sprint planning. And I actually like have been logging their requests and bring them up during that meeting. And I just say, hey, you guys mentioned these things. Are they still relevant? And let's talk about them now. And let's figure out if we should get them into the next sprint. And actually, our entire software system, it, it appears, at least to me at this moment, that it has been built around that. So a mix of like ideas coming from the product team and then also like taking input from the factory and being like, oh, hey, this actually is a problem. Let's fix this or let's add this. It's really interesting to see how the team collaborates, and it's a really powerful thing. So it's the internal product. That's the internal product. Okay. Then the external product is you visit our website, you want to upload a 3D model, or you don't have a 3D model, but it's our services, so 3D printing services. Okay. So who am I if I'm coming to the website? Am I just, you know, Suzanne and I've got an idea for a physical product that I'd like to prototype? Am I a company? Who are your users? You might be any of those things. So what's interesting about our users is some of them don't even know how to make a 3D model. Some of them don't even have an idea. Some of them are on marketing teams and they know they have to make something cool this year. They have a budget. They need help. 
So we have creative services to help them kind of guide through that process. Uh, we have a 3D design team who can make stuff for anyone that wants it. And then we also have people that are engineers that already have a part that they know they need printed or they know they need manufactured and maybe they're building their first batch of prototypes or of like product. So they can come to us. Then we also have people that are prototyping stuff that are just kind of playing around learning about 3D printing or just making stuff for themselves or their friends. Uh, we have a lot of people printing cosplay stuff, which is cool to yeah. see. And then we also have businesses that are really looking for a solution to having a lot of products or custom products. And that hasn't been possible up until this point. So we have customers like Cookie Cutter Kingdom, which is on our website as an example. They have something like 20,000 cookie cutters and you can request a custom cookie cutter through them. And they're selling them for like a few dollars on their website and they, we do their fulfillment. So when somebody places an order through their site, we print it and drop ship it to the customers directly. Awesome. Yeah. And so when you talk about the external product as kind of being the website, there's a whole sort of interactive component to the, the online experience. I mean, how much of the process can I go through online as yeah. a customer? Currently, this is something that will be in development and making it a little bit more of an experience you can have online. But right now you can upload 3D files and order them to be printed. We have up to as short as one day production. So we turn things around really quickly. But for right now, it's basically you upload a file and order it. Cool. So given that you're product manager number one, given that the company is growing, talk to us a little bit about how your, your first few weeks here have sort of been. I mean, there was a, a chief product officer. It sounds like he had established some processes. You mentioned that there were daily stand-ups. I mean, what were you walking into in terms of structure and rhythm? And what have you kind of implemented as a result of, of being the person that needs to think about these things? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've been thinking about the first 90 days more and more as the time ticks on. I'm like in my first 30 days still. So it's kind of interesting. Up until this point, up until like probably even this week, it's been mostly observation. So I've done one-on-ones with everyone in the company. I'm slowly like uncovering all the nooks and crannies of our product because it is complex once you start digging in. And basically there has been a lot of structure actually, like they have been very diligent about their daily standups and very diligent about sprint planning. And there's a lot of collaboration. There's a product roadmap for the quarter. I think John has done an incredible job at like laying a lot of groundwork. And it's been, I think mostly slowly like pulling some of those tasks into my bucket so that I'm running these standups and running the uh, sprint planning and running retro and all the rest. What is the construct then of the teams? Because you spoke before about, you know, there's 3D designers and there's folks that are sort of in the, the factory. You call that. Who are your team players specifically in product? Yeah. Or is it just you? Yeah. Well, it's me and John yeah. in product. Yeah. Um, and so we are figuring out how to work together, right? Like that is a big part of the first 30, 90 days yeah. is learning each other's personalities and learning the team's personalities really. But basically our team consists of the software team, which is about four developers. And then we have one designer and then we have the marketing team who we do interface with and we have customer support, who we interface with for insights, and sales, who we also interface with for insights. 
But for the most part, our core team is the four-person software team. Cool. So who gets to come to the sprint planning sessions then? Yeah, it sort of depends. We have two different types of sprint planning. One is like the sit with the CTO and kind of like, is this possible, yay or nay? And then the other is sitting down with the entire team and kind of giving them stories, saying like, hey, this is what we're working on this sprint. We also meet with the factory team. We invite in two of the people from the factory team and they give us their feedback about features that they want to see in the product or problems that they're having. It's kind of their opportunity to ask for things. Uh, we also meet with marketing and customer support every two weeks. So it's everybody, but for short periods of time. Right, right. Yeah. One of the things that we try to do on the show, of course, is, is shine a light on what is product management. And of course, that's complicated because it looks so different everywhere you go and, and right. how it's going to operate and establish itself in the context of a startup versus an enterprise organization, how it's gonna you know, establish itself in the context of a manufacturing company versus you know, maybe a traditional software company or some other type of product altogether is always different. But I think you know, we get a lot of feedback from our listeners and there's always this sense of, how's everyone else doing this? Like, am I doing this right? Is this what this meeting should be or not be? Do you ever feel that way? Like, am yeah. I doing this right? I've gotten actually some advice about this recently because the reality is it's a super malleable job. And also when you're in the context of a startup, everything is also more malleable than usual because it's all hands on deck all the time, right? So one thing that a friend of mine recommended was like document everything just to keep yourself grounded, to figure out what it is that you are doing. I don't think there is a right doing, but one of the things she recommended was sending weekly learnings to my manager, which would be John. And I think that's great because for myself and for him, it's like, well, this week, I don't know what I did, but I can write it down and see what I learned. And that's really useful at this stage. But right, there is no right way, wrong way. What am I doing? Okay, good, good. Well, I feel much better now. End of interview. <laughs> right. I just, I just came I here to feel that. better about my own situation. <laughs> yeah, documentation is an interesting one, right? Because for organizations that are agile and you know, you're talking about sprint planning, there is always this, I mean, it's like, it reminds me of a Dilbert strip, you know, like document nothing and it's just pure chaos. And of course it's not that, but it's always that balance between being iterative and being highly subject to change. And then at the same time, you do have to make time to capture. I know you were talking about documentation in a slightly different context, but right. I'm even thinking about recognizing where the product is at. So documenting, for example, release notes or, you know, or maintaining a change log or, or documenting sort of the user flows. Do you have any opinions about where a product manager should be thinking about taking a minute to capture all of the IP in its current state or how often we should be revisiting that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I can say what I've done so far, which is, I write down everything, even just for myself, like documenting the user flows for me is about making sure that I understand and just checking what I think I learned against like, what does John think? That has been really a helpful communication tool because maybe I'm thinking about it in a slightly different way than he was, or maybe I missed something entirely and then it's an opportunity to find out. But I kind of have been writing everything down. I'm sure that will change over time. 
No, it's, that, it's a good practice. And I, I like how you described it earlier as, as being grounding. I can definitely relate to that. I, maybe it's on my mind because I'm in a bit of a documentation heavy phase with some products that I'm working on. But there is this sense of, do I know what all the steps are? Or, you know, questions that come up. And one of the things that, that we do at my company, the Development Factory, is we provide whole product teams um, fractionally for a period of time. And then we help the organization to begin to insource, kind of sustainably insource their talent and, and their knowledge. Mm -hmm. So there's always this point where we have to start making sure that the IP that's been kind of informally understood by everyone on our team, which is highly performing, is understood by the internal organization that owns that IP and that will own that IP. And, you know, and I see this all the time in certainly in development, right? The, if if the, the pressure is velocity, 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 then the things that get compromised are code stabilization and refactoring and documentation. And, you know, how much time can you really allow to transpire before you stop and say, we need to make sure we have a record of where we're at. What is our infrastructure? What are the user flows? Did we change that? When do notifications get triggered or whatever these things are? Yeah, it's a, this might even be a personal question, honestly, right? It's like, how do, I mean, yes, for you, I think that that's like a particular problem to solve for, which is really hard. Like, how do I give you my brain on a USB stick, you know? Yeah. Maybe you guys could print those USB sticks <laughs> for me, though. We that could. might be a cool we sort could. of giveaway. Okay, we'll talk about that after, or, or I'll go to the website and I'll, I'll start the process. Yeah, that's right. Talk to us about New York. So you, you said that you started here, you were in San Francisco. That's the tech place. Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to go to San Francisco and be in tech. What was that like, first of all? It was a time of tremendous growth for me. So when I arrived in San Francisco, I remember the first few months there, I like got into a lift line and the person next to me was a product designer at YouTube or something like that. And I was like, can you tell me what it means to be a product designer at a software company? I don't understand. Like, products are physical. And I really was naive. I really had no idea at that time. And so, I mean, fast forward four years and I'm sitting here managing <laughs> product. It's kind of funny. But San Francisco is a really special place. It's like everyone you run into is talking about Kubernetes or the blockchain or, you know, like what's happening in deep learning? What's the newest GAN? It's like here you don't have those conversations as frequently. I walk into a cafe and people are talking about art and people are talking about a book they're writing. And I find that tremendously refreshing. I feel like I'm around a more balanced kind of environment. And that's kind of the contrast for me between San Francisco and New York. Yeah, yeah. LA is a lot like that as well, at least in, in my experience, that there's a sense of, there's interesting things that are happening in technology and great companies that, that are emerging and have emerged. And the unifying characteristic seems to be the diversity of what yeah. those companies are doing, which I, I think is refreshing and, and helpful to, to get outside of your own context, right? Because if you're sort of forever in software or forever in a specific kind of niche of product, then you forget to think about all of the different other use cases. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think also being around people that think in the same way can be kind of a dangerous 
yeah. thing. There's a hyper rationality that is starting to happen in San Francisco that I'm like, whoa, hang on a minute. Let's roll it back. <laughs> it, we're humans here. We have emotions and all the rest. It's like you can't be so rational all the time. Yeah. But yes, being in New York is also like I realize that everyone in this office has a really interesting story. And I really appreciate that. Like people didn't kind of go down the software engineering route and just keep chugging along. Like they had different projects they worked on and some of them worked in this 3D printing company and now they're here or they studied sculpture or, I mean, not on the software team, but, you know, in the company. Yeah, for so. sure. I like the you talk about not immediately connecting with software as product. I know you were talking about a few years ago and, and what's interesting to me about that comment you know, I, I teach a, a product management course and pretty much one of the first slides that I put up is what is product. And I think sometimes people think that I'm being cheeky and I'm not. It's precisely to say, let's take a moment and inventory, you know, do we have shared understanding in this room about what that constitutes and that product can be a 401k, it can be renewable energy and, and certainly physical product is what most of us, especially people who aren't in technology, know and think about in terms of product. Given your relationship with product, how has it changed as a result of going from physically making things, you know, with the hands, with the scissors, that construction, <laughs> that tinkering past that you came from, to the more sort of soft, you know, you're designing and, and a lot of the times, you, you know, you can't ever really touch it except for clicking it on an iPad, so to speak. Well, it's kind of tricky because there's an immediacy about it that is really tangible and like you can't physically touch it, but you can experience it right away. I actually draw a lot of parallels between the process of software and planning for software and fashion design, which sounds crazy, but I think about like a tech pack as like a user story, just its instructions on how to translate a real world problem into a physical thing or digital thing. So I actually think there's a lot of crossover. It's not quite as foreign as we want to make it. I think there are special problems or special opportunities, if you will, that come with software products as opposed to a physical good. But the process isn't necessarily so different. Yeah, no, I love that. We do a segment here on the show called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. Before we get into that, I want to ask you, have you encountered in your career friction or challenges being a you describe yourself as a prototypical woman you know <laughs> it, you grew up you you were already indoctrinated from the work that your dad was doing but were there times as you were emerging where people are like hey stay out of here robotics is for boys or you know go over there and be in fashion or so everyone many. welcome oh so <laughs> many okay good I thought you're like, no, everybody welcomed me with open arms. Um, you know what? They, it's not that they didn't welcome me, me with open arms. I think that they, I, I think it was hard to break out of the box a little bit. Like you're a designer, so you think about these things. You're not an engineer was kind of the box in <laughs> some ways. And I mean, I think that goes for the male-female dynamic as well. But I think that in my experience, at least those two dichotomies have been pretty conflated. But I think that over time, you just keep delivering results on the thing that you're working on and people start respecting that. It doesn't always work out <laughs> and that's okay. I think that one thing I've learned is that if I'm in, a, in an environment that is not supportive for me, that I should get out of that environment as fast as possible. And I think that a lot of women especially come up against that where they think they have to keep fighting 
I was definitely in that kind of position for a long time, or what I think is a long time. And I think it did a lot of damage for me. It did a lot of personal damage. So I actually like really strongly recommend getting it yourself into an environment that is welcoming and supportive and that will help you grow. Great. I love that. So in terms of advice for getting the job, at the outset of our conversation, you talked about being in fashion and recognizing that it was an industry that that needed to move and needed to evolve. And and folks that I know who work in that space have, have spoken about that feeling of like being left behind. So if I were a listener who is charting a similar course as you, meaning, you know, showed an early interest in fashion, started pursuing that career, starting to see the same things that that you have acknowledged, how could I do what you did? How can I take all of the things that I love about creating and that excites me about fashion and then translate that into a career path that could be maybe a little bit more rewarding in the context of innovation? Yeah. For one, don't be comfortable. (laughs) I think that early in my career, I felt a lot of comfort in knowing how to do a thing, which was fashion design. And over time, I realized the further away I got from that comfortable feeling, the closer I got to something innovative and something really exciting and something where I was like, I have no idea if I can do this, but I'm going to say, okay. And I think like having those gut-wrenching moments where you agree to something and you're not sure if you can deliver, I think accepting those moments and going forward is probably the most important thing that you can do in the abstract. I'm not sure that I could give a step-by-step like, how do you get here? Because I've had a very meandering path, but that would be my first and foremost advice. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great for sure. Don't be comfortable and don't be afraid of the challenge because that's where the growth opportunity often is. Exactly. What about hard lessons learned on the job? You know, I talk a lot about product management in concept is often different than product management in practice. In fact, even the documentation issue that we were speaking about earlier speaks to this. There's sort of a, if I read all of the books, I would have an idea of how this should go. And then when I'm in the room and in the rhythm, I'm like, should I be documenting? Should I not be documenting? What should I be doing? What for you have been some of the hard lessons learned or, or just things that you found to be more challenging once you actually got into the rhythm of product management as a discipline and a role? Well, for one, being okay with messing something up because I feel like it's impossible not to mess something up. And if you're not messing it up, like you're not taking the risk that you need to take. I scoped my first project here and I realized like a few things that I could have done better. I'm like, it's totally fine. It's going to be okay. We're going to fix it down the road. And it's great. We implemented this new idea. Well, you're talking about not screwing up. And I think this relates very specifically to what you said before about being in a supportive environment, because I agree with you. And if you're afraid of making mistakes all the time, part of that might have to do with who are the people that are around you? And are they, are they cultivating an environment that says, you know what, Leanne? go for it and we'll we'll iterate on your own decision making. Right. Or is it, you know, a fear-based organization and and blame-based and all of those things that cause us to act from the wrong center. That's right. Back to your point about what is a hard challenge that I have faced. Some of the hardest lessons learned, I think for me have been personal ones, just dealing with personalities, learning how to cope with different 
people's style of communication, learning how to even make that a positive communication, right? Like, I think there's a lot in there. Yeah, forget about soft robotics. It's the soft skills of product management. And, and, and it is an important one to flag because so much of our work is just simply in the aligning of different viewpoints right. and different disciplines and different ways of uh, handling situations. Yeah, I mean, even down to the like small details, how do I write a user story for this person versus this other person, right? Interesting. And it's something I'm thinking about. But then to your point about documentation, how do I document the soft stuff? Yeah, I don't know. If you, if you figure it out though, will you come back and <laughs> tell our, our whole audience about it? As always, I think the thing, right, is does somebody have the answer? No, no one has the answer. We're talking to a hundred product managers and then, you know, we hope that over time there will be some kind of consensus of, of what the answer or answers are. What do you love about this? What do you love about being a product manager when you tell your friends and family, they don't know what you do, they don't understand it, but what do you love about it anyway? Yeah, I have always loved having my hands in everything, which in other jobs has been a problem. But what I realized was actually like this is kind of the perfect role because I can have my hands in a little bit of everything and that's okay. That's actually even a good thing. So I would say that first, but then also it carries through this this love for product that I've always had, which is you build something and then you get to watch somebody use it and you get to watch it affect their lives or their workflows. And that is a super exciting thing. Yeah. Do you have any recommended resources that we can add to our, our website, 100productmanagers.com slash resources? It's a long list of books, blogs, podcasts, cool stuff that you think is worthwhile. Uh, so I will say a little bit about the things I've drawn to, which tend to be military-based, which is kind of funny, like a real tough love kind of okay. philosophy, which I don't think I could embody because I think it'd be really weird if I came in and acted like, Jocko Willink or something, but I really like him a lot. And I really like some of the takeaways that he has from, he was a Navy SEAL and he talks about being on a team when your life is at stake. And it's like the most extreme version of what you're dealing with as a PM every day. He has a podcast, but also has co-authored a book called Extreme Ownership. I also really like Wardley maps for strategy. So actually, when I was thinking about taking this job, I mapped Voodoo on a Wardley map. And I was like, well, if we move here, then we are going to be ahead of all these other things. Or if we do this, and I could kind of see where the industry was going. And I really believed in Voodoo after kind of giving myself a visual around it. So Simon Wardley, Crossing the River by Feeling the Stones. It's a one-hour like Google conference video that I love. And I'm going to have a third one, which is executive toughness, which I actually mentioned on my interview here. And it basically gives you like a few mantras that you can remind yourself of. And one of them was to adopt a relentless solution-based focus. And I love that because I think it's so easy to get bogged down in the negative details of things. And if you could just remember every single time, like I have to come up with a solution, there's no other choice, then you can push yourself forward and your team forward. Those are all three unique recommends. So wow. you did great. <laughs> and, and interestingly, naturally segued us to the, the last question that I have for you, which is about personal or professional mantra. So is that one that you shared the one that resonates most for you right now? Or is there another one that when you think about 
how you are in the world, whether it's in the context of being a product manager here at Voodoo or just in the context of being, you know, your best Leanne self, <laughs> something that guides you? Yeah, um, finding a balance between extremes is a thing that I am actively working on and a thing that I really believe is important. So for me, being in this role, it's like I'm not the authority. And I described myself the other day to one of my coworkers as being the bouncer, just kind of like... I'm here, I'm kind of like figuring out who can come in and who can't come in. And, you know, like I'm safeguarding the software team, but like I'm not, I'm not here to boss anybody around. I'm here to hear what you have to say. So there's like a really big balance there because I want to make sure that I am a person that every single person in Voodoo can come and talk to about some problem that they're facing because that might be because of something I built or it might be because of something I should build. So Towing the line between so many things is kind of my philosophy right now. <laughs> Love that. Leanne Luce, thank you so much for being a part of our show. We're excited for you on your journey here, and I can't wait to see what happens at day 60 and day 90 and beyond. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple Store, at Google Play, or on Stitcher, or leave us a great review so others can help find us. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com, or visit us on the web. Thank you.